0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane
1: Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Red Herring Integration. The Cincinnati Library. Horror Essentials Part 3. And the Occultism
0: of Timothy Leary.
1: Pop-up juncture Nazis with Wolf Guns Blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s, Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas
0: Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the
1: game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures,
0: and 10% off cover price.
1: If the program gets 350 subscribers, by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe.
0: You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book.
1: And you can cancel any time. Learn more at atlas-games.com/FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze. Of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But before we can go to the gaming hut, Robin, we need to go to the gaming vestibule. That's right. And maybe the gaming foyer and the gaming closet. Oh, Robin, once more, I've gotten us tangled up in a series of red herrings, just as if I were any player ever. Because beloved Patreon backer Kevin Greenlee has asked us, once your players do invent their own red herring, how might you as a GM incorporate it in a way that's dramatically interesting? So note what I did there, Robin. I got us off on a red herring. But it turned out to be dramatically interesting. Out, to the well, question.
0: L- let's see.
1: <laughs> I yeah, well, to the listener, determined. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's as interesting as the question itself, and we're not going to obviously reject Kevin question. because it's a good question. I yes, feel because
0: uh, this is not the the one oh one on red herrings, uh, which is of course a thing we always say so much so that we've even put it on a shirt. Yep. Uh, which is, as uh, Kevin suggests, that the players will invent their own red herrings. You don't normally mm-hmm. need to build a full on sidetrack into a mistier scenario the uh, players will uh, go ahead and do that and the uh, the 201 on red herring is make the red herring somehow connect up to the main plot uh, so that when you go off and uh, think that there's a werewolf motorcycle gang out in the woods when you go out to the woods yes you encounter the werewolf motorcycle gang because Clearly, at least one of the players really wants that. Mm -hmm. But then after you fight them, you go into the garage and you find the USB drive that leads you back to uh, the, not the story, but the nexus of potential stories that you as a GM are prepared uh, to do. And so this, I would argue, is a 301 question because it's not about how to get it, the plot back in the order that you thought it might be, but rather to make it dramatically interesting somehow bring out something emotional about the uh, characters and so the the way to do that of course is to uh, look at the particular character who is most interested in the red herring or most needs spotlight time and then find a way to create a subplot that tells you something about that character allows for character riffing or advances continuity for that character Continuity, of course, works better if you're running a campaign rather than a one-shot. So have the red herring meaningful to the character uh, rather than only meaningful to the story.
1: Right. That uh, it's not just a motorcycle werewolf gang. It's that one of the werewolves turns out to be, you know, their uh, maybe not their long-lost brother, but maybe the werewolf who ate their long-lost brother. And they get some closure or they get an advance on the whatever happened to my long lost brother and what happened to him between the time that he, uh, vanished, uh, and he was eaten by a werewolf. Is there more to that story? But you've at least, you know, uh, laid a brick in that long running edifice. Another way to link the red herring dramatically is to make it thematically redound to the main, uh, campaign or the main story or the main, mood and tenor, and that can either be if you're doing a mystery of of familial betrayal, uh, and you go out and you uh, meet the werewolf cycle gang, and you realize, oh, they're a family pack, and the old gray wolf is the dad, and the young red wolf is the rebellious son, why it's similar to the actual mystery we should have been investigating. Uh, There's a, a lovely case of parallelism, or acts as a foil that in the house, because of the characters having to maintain cover, they can't just, you know, up and shoot everything. And they're 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 just getting so darned angry and nervous. And the werewolf gang gives them a emotional counterfoil to let them release. And the contrast between the release of fighting motorcycle werewolf gang and the uh, control of having to remain undercover and in character in character when you, they're in the in the big house provides the, um, the resonance there, right?
0: Right. And nine times out of ten, the setting uh, that either you created or that has been created for you by a uh, humble game designer such as uh, Ken and I will do most of that work for you, is that uh, if there is an overall motif to the game, a theme, that anything that could be in the game will somehow relate to that. So if the werewolves are uh, in the Yellow King role-playing game, Uh, they will somehow relate to Carcosa and the uh, reading of the play uh, The King in Yellow or related somehow to the uh, Yellow Sign Conspiracy and so that they will, uh, the game will have uh, created uh, player characters so that they relate to that main theme and also the description of a werewolf or just the idea of what a werewolf might be and that will help solve that problem for you. So the uh, werewolves that the players will uh, decide to go and find in the woods in Yellow King will have something to do with reality horror and uh, the breaking down of uh, emotional and mental barriers. And if instead uh, they are uh, werewolves in a Trail of Cthulhu game, they first of all will turn out not to be werewolves at all. they will be some uh, weird slimy rugose thing vaguely reminds people of uh, werewolves. But when you get up close to them, they will be mythos entities and they will remind you again of uh, the insignificance of mankind and the great uh, cosmic uh, scheme of uh, a lack of the scheme and, and nothingness and despair.
1: Right. They'll be like the things in the basement of the shunned house, just an um, uh, endless protoplasm of uh, nuclear forces with tiny human faces screaming in them.
0: Yes. And so, you know, so a lot of the time you don't have to worry about this. And also just as the players will create their own red herrings, they will, Impose meaning on those red herrings, uh, so that uh, they may well uh, do the work for you. Of course, of making it dramatically interesting, because that is not just your job, game master. It's also the player's job, and the uh, character who is looking for opportunities to bring out his theme of uh, the beast within. Uh, he's he's itching to do that. Maybe that's why he's interested in heading af- after werewolves in the first place, consciously or other- otherwise. And so the players may do that for you. So. Uh, Another answer would be to hang back a bit and see clearly they're pursuing this red herring because they're interested in it. So don't gazump whatever it is that they have found fascinating. Give yourself time to figure out what it is and uh, deliver that because, again, it may be that just as the uh game setting has done a lot of the work and maybe that your players are doing a lot of the work as well.
1: Right. At some level, uh if players are interested enough in a red herring to follow it, then it has become, at least in the short term, dramatically interesting and in that it was interesting to them. Your job uh mostly redounds to not getting in the way of that and figuring out a reveal or a conclusion or an ending. You don't have to make the whole encounter dramatically interesting. Um and again in, in one that's just an emotional counterweight. You don't even have to come up with that ending. You just have to make sure that the, the, that the red herring doesn't drag on long enough that it becomes, uh, tiresome. But, uh, really the only thing you need to come up with is, is one reveal, one moment that the, uh, a seed pearl that the players can then crystallize, uh, their own retroactive or emergent story out of. And that can be, you know, as you say, you, you pick something from, from one of the player's backstory or one of the player's story arc. And then moving along, it can be a uh, bit in a, a threat that you've been building that's separate from the immediate mystery. So rather than tie into something in the campaign's past or in the player's past, uh, it ties into something in the future that the uh, werewolf cycle gang are all showing signs of, um, uh, of of drug use and that they've been chewing plants. That, uh, uh, grow in Tibet, that they're all Luminum Marifasa addicts because that's what werewolves get high on. And you're setting up the notion of a, uh, Himalayan drug cult being part of your, your game as an, as an antagonist or, uh, for something else. And this is your first option to drop them in anyway. So there, there are other parts of the campaign that you can mine for that literally that just one reveal that you need at the end of the uh, red airing. Right.
0: Uh, as the author of Hamlet's Hit Points, uh, it would be remiss of me not to also mention the uh, cycle of hope and fear, and you might want to consider the emotional needs of the story in terms of whether you need it to move it more toward hope, toward lightness, toward a good result, because uh, the players have been uh, struggling and feel desperate and are uh, bothered and upset, uh, versus uh, they're getting cocky, they've had too many triumphs in a row, which... Uh, I don't know, it doesn't often describe a lot of games I recall, but uh, it may be that they you know, they had a walkover encounter and they're, they, they need to, to be taken down a peg or two, or they more likely perhaps have committed some uh, moral transgression that uh, calls for comeuppance. And so the, uh, what happens when they meet the werewolves in the woods may be a matter of uh, emotional calibration. So if you need it to be uh, something where they can uh, find somebody's uh, head to bust, It's, uh, you know, all they find is the uh, weaselly Peter Lorre-style werewolf sweeping up in the motorcycle gang werewolf headquarters. They're able to easily get the drop on him, uh, knock him around, and then he gives them whatever information they they think they want. And so they feel that they have uh, come on the upside of that encounter, whereas uh, in the less likely case of their uh, feeling their oats, and needing to be taken down a peg or two, or just maybe they're bored and they want some gratuitous action, which is why they're again looking for werewolves. there could be a big tough fight. You might also uh look for ways to have two characters riff with each other. So once you find out that they're heading off to the forest to talk to werewolves, you might have a character who's the sort of the cautious one who likes to talk and the fighty one who is impulsive and uh, reacts poorly to uh, stimuli. And so you might have the, uh, the werewolf gang leader taunt them and create the opportunity for uh, riffing between the cautious character and, and the reckless character or so forth.
1: Yeah. Um, just any sort of example of, you know, bringing out character play, which is not the same thing as, Creating a, a character story moment, but it can still be a a fun bit. So yeah, if you've got a, a character that is is always the timorous one, you know maybe lay extra you know werewolf spoor out there. You know you see the 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 paw print um, uh, in motor oil uh, on the side of a tree, and they're like, oh, I don't like the look of that. And you um, maybe have the. The, the the werewolves, um, uh, motorcycles be audible in the distance to sort of set up a, no, let's, let's not do this. Maybe we should go. Um, uh, what? Hey. And then, uh, the other players can have their fun of saying, no, 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 let's all rush in stupidly. And whatever it is that they do look at, look for opportunities to bring out character moments that the players enjoy. Again, don't turn it into a a chance for the, Players to derail their own red herring, which, believe me, happens more often <laughs> than you want it to. Uh,
0: r- red herring derailments uh, injure a surprising number of Americans every year.
1: <laughs> That's right. You you would not think that because they, they just uh, lay there dragged across the trail by by um uh, groundskeepers but it turns out it's it's more hazardous than that but just uh it, this is all part of keeping an eye on uh, as you say the emotional tenor the emotional balance of the game and often what uh players will uh in- enjoy is a little bit of opportunity to to do their bit there uh, if you think of it as you know the the Spock McCoy dynamic whenever there's uh, something going on, Captain Kirk's id and his superego would have a fight and we would emotionally advance the story. So maybe you can think about which of your two characters represent, uh, not necessarily the id and the superego of the party, but represent the thesis and the antithesis that will create the useful synthesis of the party. And you can give them, uh, a opportunity at the beginning of the, of the scene or during even the fight scene to play off of each other in that fashion. So. Um We have, I guess we have story reveal, we have character reveal, and then we have sort of uh, character moment as another uh, way to, to to make it happen. Uh, and, and this could also be for something where if you think that there's a player character, not necessarily who hasn't had the spotlight, but who hasn't gotten to use a signature ability. You know, you've got the psychic and uh, they haven't unleashed in the house because of uh, the very real worry that the supervillain will find them. Uh, give their, give the psychic an opportunity to show off. It doesn't matter, uh, whether or not the, uh, cycle gang werewolves, you know, um, are realistically, uh, presented. What matters is that this is a, uh, fun encounter. And if the psychic hasn't gotten to psych very much, you can say, Oh, you sense anger or, uh, or whatever the emotional tenor of your werewolves is and let the psychic, you know, pinpoint them so your player characters have, uh, a chance to use that ability that they maybe haven't gotten to.
0: Right. And uh, before you uh, slipped in that important additional point, you gave us a summation. <laughs> and I so did? Even a summation oh, no. interrupted by another point, I think is still cause for us to uh, head... Did I, did I red segment. herring
1: my own summation of red You're herrings? Red herring your derailed red
0: herring. Right. So b- before cosmic <laughs> recursion occurs, it's time for us to head into the next hut. The second edition of Mutant City Blues by Robin D. Laws and now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan
1: is now in print from Pelgrane Press.
0: Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future where 1% of the population wields
1: superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call.
0: New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign
1: frame, a simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities, expanded chase rules, and a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store or use the voucher code Diagram2020 to get 15% off at the Pograin store.
0: The columns and the cornices, the squeak of the uh, plotters tell us that we are once more in that uh, most solid of huts, that most sheltering of huts, the architecture hut. The
1: queen of huts, just as architecture is the queen of arts. Ah,
0: there we go. The most regal of huts, the architecture hut. And beloved Patreon backer Tom Abella wants to know, what's the deal with? The old public library of Cincinnati, originally designed as an opera house, but repurposed to a library after the initial project fell apart. There must be some kind of real history behind its demolition, right? And so you may hear, attentive listener, that some Cincinnati things coming up again, because in episode 333, the suspiciously numbered 333, we were asked about the Cincinnati subway, Another cool thing that Cincinnati once had and then doesn't anymore. And in fact, I'm beginning to think uh, that Cincinnati specializes in formerly having cool things. Like, for example, you know, WKRP after Johnny Fever left. I think uh, I think nowadays it's like a 790 the 5, which is an all Maroon 5 and Maroon 5 side project radio format. Right. So yeah. everything cool in Cincinnati is in the past and, and destroyed. Uh, So if you hear some uh, bits, uh, the same slim threads of elliptonic research uh, show up again in a different context, uh, that will be we're just demonstrating how to do that through through a different lens. Because, Ken, it's not like Cincinnati turns out to be weirdly denuded of interesting weirdness, except for their policy of losing subways and libraries. Yes,
1: their their infrastructural sloppiness. Notwithstanding. I mean, let's, let's not ding Cincinnati too hard. I mean, for God's sake, they have to live with their chili. They're, they're, they're innocent victims in this matter. I think in 333, we came up with some good stuff. They've got, you know, the serpent mound nearby. They've got all kinds of good things. Don't, don't, um, uh, walk around with your head, uh, slumped down, weeping into your filthy excuse for a chili Cincinnati. I mean, uh, you're, you're good people and you, you've got weird nonsense. It's just that you keep misplacing glorious infrastructure and Robin and I have to ding you a couple of points for that. So I guess to begin with, the real history is that the building was built on a smaller than normal lot, which is partly why if you go to any pictures of the old Cincinnati library, you will see that they built these ridiculously tall, narrow bookcases. They couldn't, break the building up into floors and still hold all the books so that the individual floors are, you know, giant atria and the bookcases are piled on top of each other such that you go up a little rickety iron staircase to get to your specific bookcase. It all looks uh, very Borgesian, people compare it to Harry Potter, but read another book, uh, people who write about libraries, for God's sakes. (laughs) And so the the structure itself was cramped and crowded and was always cramped and crowded, but there was not a ton of public money, and there was other things to do, like destroy your perfectly good subway. So, it ticked along just fine. They uh, hired a faultless modernist architect to build a faultlessly modernist building across the street, and then they tore it down between January and June of 1955. They did all the moving, took the books out. It was also a very old building in uh, 1874 was when it was put up, so it Uh, had infrastructural problems that would have been very expensive to fix. This is not an excuse. This is an explanation.
0: Yes, this is not a case where everybody went, how can we possibly destroy this no longer practical but a beautiful library? It was like, oh, man, this place is a rat's nest and the paint is peeling off and it's only a matter of time before someone, you know, does a header (laughs) off one of these picturesque but extremely dangerous uh, spiral stairs and drops down four stories into the Shakespeare section. So there was uh, Cincinnati was very enthusiastic about going to its new modernist uh, library. Uh, There's one holdover. The original archway for the old library uh, had the heads of uh, Shakespeare in the middle over the archway and uh, Milton on one side and Benjamin Franklin on the other side and those heads were moved uh, to a garden in the new library and so the uh, the three magical patrons of the library; their their power was uh, preserved and, and
1: moved. Their genius loci. Yes.
0: So uh, the the question then becomes: What exactly is 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 the weirdness that, uh, in addition to fear of someone falling down the library to their death, uh, would have necessitated uh, this uh, change? And so, if we look back at the uh, architect of the original building, the interior was done by uh, someone named William McLaughlin. Uh, It was a high uh, Victorian uh, style, as we've suggested, all sorts of cast iron. And McLaughlin uh, hails from Duluth. And uh, because we run out of things to say about Cincinnati, let's look at Duluth, because Duluth is the zenith city. And of course, the zenith is an imaginary point in the celestial sphere, the highest point that can possibly be above your head, wherever you are. And uh, therefore, this suggests that the... Uh, Original plan of the library through the uh, zenith uh, powers of William McLaughlin was somehow to situate Cincinnati in the sphere, in the heavens, in the cosmos. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is: Why did they find out that the actual zenith was across the street, or why did they need a different cosmic spire for this invisible axis mundi that is the uh, the library? And uh, we've looked at other Cincinnati weirdness before the. January 12th, 1916, skyquake, which shook the downtown, suggests that uh, some assault uh, from the heavens, uh, from a nadir perhaps, if if not from a zenith, occurred and uh, perhaps shook the library on its uh, foundations. Again, I think we have to reject the uh, 1899 incident in which a horse's jaw swelled up as just... I, I feel I just, like
1: that's a coincidence really. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um and that of course is part of the great uh kissing bug wave of 1899 all across the entire uh, northeast of the US where uh strange invisible beings were uh biting people. But that's uh weird but I think unrelated to the library and and you can't get a horse into the library, especially a small one.
1: Not in that library. There was no space for a horse. That was one of the problems, the new library. I'm sure you can put a horse in only a modernist horse though. Of course, of course, of course. Uh, In 1955, there is a gigantic UFO flap over Cincinnati. uh, Many, many sightings and indeed a case of mysterious red goo that fell from the sky uh, reported in July, which means after the library had moved, and then followed up by mysterious men in black. So, you can imagine, perhaps, as you say, the skyquake announcing that the Nadir had found the new zenith and was um uh, uh, opening uh its salvos against uh, Cincinnati— uh, no doubt all manner of, of weirdness went on in the twenties and thirties that we must have talked about earlier. And then in the forties and fifties, the forces of the Nadir, uh, move in and you get a massive number of UFOs all up and down the whole, uh, Ohio river, uh, nothing to do with the fact that they're right near Wright Patterson air base, uh, in Dayton where they're flying experimental aircraft. That's ridiculous. You would never have anything to do with all the UFOs sighted in Cincinnati in the 40s and 50s.
0: Yeah, I would I would sooner believe that this has to do with a swelled jaw of a
1: horse. Exactly. And when you start talking about men in black showing up, that's where I think we can start saying something must have gone on. There must be, you know, tulpas afoot or uh, investigators from the hollow subway universe or, or something else is going on that is tied up. And that the move of the library may have been a defensive move that the old cast iron... Interior was just drawing off too much power and, and, and creating a, a vile vortex, perhaps. And that the move across the library was intended to sort of castle, uh, Cincinnati's triune literate genius loci, Shakespeare, Milton, and Franklin, uh, into a new, uh, geomantically insignificant place, uh, so that they could be hidden, uh, from the, from the UFOs because the UFO flap does indeed. Uh, taper off in the latter part of the 1950s, the move must have worked, or perhaps the United States moved its secret aircraft testing program to Nevada. Who can say? But either way, the castling, I think, is, is the real thing that's happening, that there's some, perhaps an ill-advised signal that Cincinnati is, as you say, the, the, the true zenith. Um, attracts a lot of attention. And then as the forces of the Nadir are closing in, they, they switch it out. And, uh, there's one last battle in the skies, the red goop of which falls down on Cincinnati. And then the, the, the black, the men in black tulpas or possibly Air Force investigators, uh, show up to, to clear it all out.
0: Uh, well, I think that's, uh, an excellent answer, uh, not least because it uh, means that I don't have to try and fit in the rain of birdshot that uh, continually dropped from the ceiling of the uh, John W. Lingo hardware store 31 miles away in Lebanon, Ohio, six years after the original building of the uh, library. You can, I suppose, posit that this was a uh, a sign that the uh, original Zenith had been misplaced. Uh, but that, I think, when you look into it more, it's because there was a shooting of an intruder earlier, and uh, perhaps bullets were falling uh, from the ceiling of the uh, the library. But I think that's That's yet another story that Ken, I think, has nothing at all to do with architecture, except, I suppose, the architecture of the the hardware store.
1: Right, yeah, which is probably, you know, and nothing against it, it's probably just Uh, turn-of-the-century cracker box. Not not particularly distinguished. Maybe there's a cornice. Lots of cornices in that era. Lots of uh, uh, Greek and Southern Italian immigrants. So, I'm sure it had lovely terracotta work, but still... Certainly
0: not built by William McLaughlin. Not a William
1: McLaughlin cast-iron tulpa maze, slash geomantic magnet point. Not one of those.
0: Well, uh, I think having explained everything, it's time for us to move on to yet another segment Mm -hmm. in our... The best of Ask the is now available at DriveThruRPG.
1: All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled
0: And six
1: guns role playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather, Varmint, in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Keep our herrings amply refrigerated by joining beloved Patreon backers exactly like Robert Dean, Chris Lydon, Ben Vincent, Chad Ward, and Dan Simons. The horror of the projector, the coil of cigarette smoke arcing up through the beam, whatever that is on the floor, it's getting stickier because we keep coming back to our seats in the center aisle of the cinema hut uh, because we're covering the horror essentials and it's not just uh, the horror of uh, the cinema floor. It's not even the horror of uh, having to watch movies in black and white like an animal. It's the horror of genre and we we left off last week in the tail end of the 1930s with the firing of Carl Lemley from Universal and the end of creativity at the universal studios i think we're going to pick up one last universal classic and then technically another universal classic one that sort of is the exception that proves the rule and then we're going to talk about an even better studio than universal uh, so robin let's start us off with the, the universal monster that we've missed
0: right it, it turned invisible on us right we gave everybody a week mm-hmm. in order to uh tweet at us and say I can't believe you left out The Invisible Man by 1933 by James Whale. Were you trying not to mention too many James Whale movies in one segment? And uh, really, honestly, I just misremembered the date on that. I've, because it is so slickly produced and because I don't think of Claude Rains, the brilliant star of that movie, as having his career starting in the early 30s, right. I uh, was planning to include it uh, this time around. And, and to my shock and horror... Uh, I discovered that uh, the date was 1933, not in the uh, 40s at all. So this, again, is another classic literary adaptation, as all of, as many of these early horror uh, classics uh, tend to be. Uh, it captures, I think, H.G. Uh, Wells's most overtly socialistic message of his science fiction and horror works, which is that if society can no longer see you, can no longer hold you accountable, if you are uh, able to just stand outside... Invisibly watching everyone else, and if inevitably you will be dragged down into uh, becoming a monster yourself. And uh, it has the great image of the, the the bandages that he has to wrap around his head in order to become uh, briefly visible. That is uh, again another resonant visual horror image from that era and a uh, produ- production that, as I suggest, is uh, a lot slicker and more lavish than you would expect from thirty-three.
1: That is certainly true. I. I, I think I'd mentally count it as sort of a second tier James Whale. Although, as you say, it, uh, it does what it says on the box and it does it really well. 1941's The Wolf Man is what I was mentioning when I was mentioning our last uh, gasp of universal horror, directed by George Wagner, possibly more importantly, written by Kurt Sodmack, um, who is the brother, I believe, of the great noir director Robert Sodmack. And it created the werewolf mythology as we have come to know it. Uh, the werewolf, of course, is the is the classic monster that is without a great novel. The novel The Werewolf of Paris is about a ghoul, for example. Um, there is no great werewolf novel. The text, therefore, of what we think of as the werewolf is this movie and this teleplay. And, of course, Lon Chaney Jr. giving, I think, the performance of his life, Robin. I don't believe that he's ever been better. Than he was as Larry Talbot, the the man who is bitten by a werewolf to become the titular Wolfman. It has the the great uh, poem, even a man who is pure in heart, which is uh, possibly one of the greatest pieces of poetry of the nineteen forties, on or off screen, as far as I'm concerned, and then uh, certainly one of the most effective. It's got the whole mythology, uh, the pentagram, the full moon, uh, the transformation, the silver bullet, the the whole y- the whole nine yards. All of that is Sodmak pulling together elements from other screenplays, uh, bits of *The Werewolf of London*, uh, which is another movie that is worth watching if you're into werewolves, but not worth going on this list, even though it also is the 1930s. But the whole arc of that movie is 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 really good. It's it's a strong emotional arc. Uh, again, you're sympathetic to the monster, which turns out to be something of a of a universal uh, light motif. And it is uh, just, given that it was probably made for about $8,000, it's kind of a beautiful uh, studio backlot movie, right?
0: Yes. And particularly, uh, it epitomizes the whole backlot gothic aesthetic uh, because you're not sure when it is. It sort of seems... You're told you're in England, yeah. and of course, Lon Chaney uh, has nothing resembling a, a, a British accent. I think they explain cast that as, as an as American America. Right? Yeah. Claude Rains, again, is in this. He plays the forbidding father figure. There's a whole Oedipal thing going on, uh, in addition to your uh, werewolfiness, and uh, but there's modern cars, but uh, otherwise a, a gothic set design, so, and, uh, you know, there's... Uh, apparently, uh, you know, this estate in England, well, Romania, is just you know, down the road a bit and uh, you can go there and find your sinister fortune tellers with their uh, Eastern European accents and uh, it's a great uh, sort of late uh, take on the Universal uh, Monster Collection and you kind of, in your head, you kind of think, oh, well, the Wolfman is part of that great triumvirate with Dracula and Frankenstein, but he's actually uh, comes a decade later although that doesn't stop Dracula and Wolfman and Frankenstein from teaming up in various completely anodyne sequels afterwards.
1: Right. And and that none of those movies are particularly good or at all good really with the possible exception of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which turns out to be a slightly better than average Abbott and Costello movie. And certainly it had the biggest budget of any universal horror film, but it sets up a sort of a inter mythology of the universal horror uh, monsters that shows up again in things like Monster Squad in the 80s and even now, um, in, in uh, Creature Commandos, I believe that the comic book was from the 50s. Uh, there is this notion that these universal monsters are somehow unwilling players in some, hellish commedia dell'arte that that keeps coming up and one of them is going to be the mad scientist and one of them is going to be the the victim and one of them is going to be in the middle and there's going to be this triangle that happens over and over and over again the Steven Sommers movie Van Helsing which uh has very little to formally recommend it, but I, but it is something of a feast for the eyes. It plays with this, with this notion. And, and I think the reason is because Larry Talbot, uh, Lon Chaney's performance is so strong that it establishes this human quality to the mythos that is kind of absent in Frankenstein, even though he's sympathetic and Dracula, which is almost bereft of humanity at all uh larry talbot brings it in and gives you that sort of emotional anchor on which to hang many very terrible movies but uh there is something there that people keep coming back to and it's not just universal trying to get another uh, lick in the gravy bowl i I think that there's actually something going on
0: also in 1941 we have another version of dr jekyll and mr hyde this one is directed by uh, victor fleming Of uh, Wizard of Oz fame and this has uh, Spencer Tracy as uh, Jekyll and when he plays Hyde in this case it's full-on monstery prosthetic makeup. It has Ingrid Bergman in it and Lana Turner and is a much uh, lusher production in keeping with the early 40s and is a great example of kind of the two relatively close together uh, adaptations of the same source material that do it in a radically different way and are uh, both really successful, so uh, if you want to uh, get your uh, cineast kicks from comparing the aesthetic of the uh, early 30s to 10 years later uh, and still enjoy really great uh,
1: Jekyll and Hyde, uh, you can
0: do that uh, with the Spencer Tracy Ingram Bergman version.
1: From the lush uh, A-list, we descend to the bottom of the B-list with the RKO uh, Horrors. Produced by the great Val Lewton, a fellow who is maybe the most singular producer to put their thumb on things before uh, Kevin Feige, in the sense of having a feel that he imposes on his films. And rather than that feel being anodyne marshmallow fluff, the feel is brooding menace, uh, because Val Lewton knew how to make a movie creep you out, and he begins... In 1942, when he's put in charge of RKO, RKO's horror rather, not the whole studio, with the title Cat People, which is what he was given and told, Your first movie is called Cat People. And Val Lewton said, well, what's it about? And they said, you're the Val Lewton. You figure it out. So off he and goes. It's oh, not about people who own too many cats. cats. That's, that's not going to do it. Um, and instead, it's a movie about a woman who believes that she is cursed by a family curse to become a panther at night. And she is uh, very psychologically uh, disturbed by this. We have Tom Conway shows up as the extraordinarily bad psychiatrist and bad person, Dr. Lewis Judd and uh it's a love story if she ever finds true love she will kill him in her panther form that's the thing that she fears so there's all a manner of um deep freudian uh, goodness in there and there is also a ongoing sense of menace and so the monster per se is barely ever visible except as it is limbed by the dialogue and the character actions, and because the monster is, is just potential. We don't even know what's going to happen. Uh, Cat People is also famous for the first and, I think, best instance, although they're all great, of what is called the Luton bus in which the other woman in the scenario the sort of uh, innocent woman in the in the triangle the one who merely fears that a giant werecat is stalking her is uh, walking down the street is followed by some menacing shadows and strange noises and uh, at one point you hear a hiss and a snarl and it turns out to be a bus stopping and um, uh, releasing uh, its air brakes and that uh, moment created by uh, editor Uh, Mark Robson is a signature moment of that film. And one of the best it's not so much a jump scare as a jump reliever, but it is a signature moment in, I would say, not just this movie, not just 40s horror, but I think for all time, it's one of the great suspense moments. Uh, Luton and Tourneur and his, uh, his team do it in other films. But in this one, it's the first and the best.
0: And, and that's uh, Jacques Tourneur, the director of this film and the director of the next one we're going to talk
1: about. Yes. Uh, the, the, the great Jacques Tourneur who, who sort of cuts his teeth on, on Val Luton films because Luton is also uh, very, very good at, at spotting talent and promoting them as rapidly as he possibly can.
0: Right. So there's a whole cycle of uh, Luton produced films. And, uh, what they have in common is atmosphere, a sort of a a sense of eeriness and dread, which, uh, the thing about atmosphere is it's relatively inexpensive, uh, to produce. And so, and (laughs) Archeo was a a second rank studio at best. And so they needed to keep a budget. And the eeriness of uh, Luton sort of seeps out like smoke under the, uh, door threshold to other films. And so even something like The Woman on the Beach, uh, an archeo sort of film noir romance directed by Jean Renoir, the great French uh, director during his brief uh, Hollywood period. It's a film noir romance with Robert uh, Mitchum and uh, Joan Bennett. And you can just sort of, it, but it just has all this strange quality. There's like a long sequence, about a sea grave that impacts the mood, but nothing else. And you can just imagine that there's a, an imaginary panther just over the next way, who doesn't quite come into this one? So there's this whole eerie feel that uh, inflects uh, the uh, works of the whole studio. And uh, we're going to mention another Teneur Luton film, and that is "I Walked with a Zombie," uh, which is the carries this feeling of subjective menace. Is there really anything supernatural going on, or are people uh, just getting the mythology of uh, Haiti? Working it's it's wiles on them and uh, is another sort of moody. It's not violent, it's not menace so much as as unease and an unease that I uh, think transcends while also uh, evoking its uh the Hollywood imagined Haiti, the backlot Haiti. Uh,
1: there's two other um sort of key takeaways from I Walked with the Zombie over and above as you say it's masterful atmosphere of an- unease. Uh it is one, it treats voodoo uh, respectfully as a, a religion with real weight and real uh, belief consequences as a real religion that is more spiritually powerful and meaningful uh than any of the things believed in by the sort of the, the, the main white characters, which is very unusual for a film in 1943. And also it's Jane Eyre. It's a loose reinterpretation of Jane Eyre. So you're, you're about halfway through it and you think this is such a weirdly familiar story. And I think that's part of the, the sense of the, of the odd, I can almost grasp it diaphanousness of the film. And then when you uh, twig to the fact that it's Jane Eyre, that that adds another layer of sort of mythic power uh, to to a, again, uh, relatively short and uh, very, very uh, cheaply filmed movie that is nonetheless rich and uh, rewarding to watch.
0: So there are a lot of different uh, Luton films. Uh, in the DVD era, there was a, a Luton box, which was a must-have. I'm not sure if there's an equivalent on Blu-ray or if they've been split up between different titles, but a lesser-known one that nonetheless is extremely influential in and sort of the basis of Rosemary's Baby and uh, all sorts of other modern-day coven movies is The Seventh Victim from 1943. And this is when Mark Robson uh, graduates from editor to uh, director and uh, gives you uh, a pretty early, I think, satanic uh, conspiracy, which, of course, is an an image that doesn't start with this movie, goes way back into uh, real history, uh, but yes. is uh, going to continue to have uh, an effect on uh, on culture. But this one is also notable for its... A sense of neurosis and menace and and that uh, theme, because of this movie, I think carries through almost all other uh, coven movies, even to an extent that the initial material doesn't necessarily require.
1: One of the uh, things about this movie that's worth mentioning is that uh, Dr. Judd comes back from uh, Cat People to play an even oilier version of himself. Uh, This is the sort of thing where you kind of wish that uh, they could have gotten George Sanders. It's not that Tom Conway doesn't knock it out of the park as the creepy and disturbing Dr. Judd, but you just are looking at him and thinking, oh, George Sanders would have been even oilier. Uh, but it's still, it, it's an amazing, it's a really good performance. Um, it's a terrific film. There's a lot of levels built into it. It is not a lazy film in any way. Although, again, it's it's barely 70 minutes. You know, it had the same $125,000, $130,000 budget that, that, that all the Tornor or all the Luton RKO films had. If you want to hear me go on about it at great length, you can dial up the Monster Kid radio podcast. Uh, the episode talking about this film, I talk with uh, beloved Monster Kid, uh, Derek Cook, and we go off on this movie for, I think, longer than its running time. We spend talking about how great the film is, and it is, uh, it is just there. There is another great Luton bus moment. There is a walk down a hallway that may be one of the best walks down a hallway in all film history. It's just an, a a terrific, terrific movie. The sweet innocent girl character is shown to have definite emotional uh, depth and and left turns uh, in her. It's not a simple film in any respect, and it is a uh, a real. Uh, it's it's a real gem and it's not one that people have, have heard of as much. And so I think you can sort of show off if you watch the seventh victim and can then uh, praise it. Maybe not for 72 minutes, but you'll you'll get some, some nods from the cognoscenti Robin. I feel like that will happen.
0: Right. And, and it's RKO. They couldn't afford George Sanders. They had to go with his brother, Tom Conway. So next we have one of the, uh, I think this is our first classic ghost movie. Uh, ghost movies have always been uh, hard to do. And uh, this is the first film that really does a good job of doing a serious ghost movie instead of in the West ghosts are traditionally associated with uh, comedy because what can they do to you Well, they perhaps they can possess you can and lead you to the edge of a cliff uh, as they do in the uninvited from 1944. Martin yeah. Lewis Allen happen. with the, with Ray Moland.
1: the great Ray Moland. I feel like, um at some point you you watch enough ray meland films and you start saying wow this is a really good performance for ray Moland, and you just say wow that was ray Moland. he's terrific in it It's a couple of americans who buy a house in england on a on a whim and discover that that's a terrible idea for so many different reasons it's uh, pre-amityville so it's not actually about economic precarity it is about uh romantic precarity and knowledge of who you are uh, is this, is the sort of undertone in it. And it is a terrific, uh, film. It is a terrific ghost story. It is, I think, one of the first movies to have a real haunting as opposed to something for Bob Hope or whoever to run in and say, ghosts, go, go, go. Uh, it is, um, it's, it's serious. It's, uh, atmospheric. It gets remade every so often. And it was very influential on uh, on ghost movies uh, ever after. It's uh, one of the movies that you watch it, and it's going to feel super weirdly familiar the entire time that you're watching it, and it's because you're watching the movie that all other ghost movies kind of ripped off.
0: And uh, we're going to end with another uh, influential uh, first, or at least the first good version of that that led to all the other versions afterwards, and that is the horror anthology. We're going over to the UK for Dead of Night from 1945, directed by Basil Dearden who uh, is mostly specialized in British crime flicks, but is one of the directors here. And the most famous of the uh, segments here, where there's like a framing sequence where there's people are talking about horror stories and they recount these. Uh, so basically each episode is kind of like a precursor of the Twilight Zone. And the most famous one is the Michael Redgrave uh, ventriloquist uh, episode, which uh, just as the uninvited lays down the template for ghosts, this lays down the uh, basics of the very specific uh, ventriloquist dummy horror uh, subgenre.
1: Yeah, the ventriloquist dummy does get all the sort of attention. The uh, uh, ventriloquist dummy segment was directed by uh, Alberto Cavalcanti. Dearden did the frame story and the sort of Dickensian oldest ghost story in it, a, a bit called The Hearst Driver, um based on a short story by EF Benson um and that one starred uh Miles Mallison and Anthony Baird so it uh, it was sort of a, a you know it's an Ealing Studios film it's it's the British high B-list I guess so you get a lot of very familiar characters as you say uh Michael Redgrave um uh Googie Withers is in it all kinds of uh, uh, of character actors uh, who you'll recognize. And it is the classic anthology film. And unlike most anthology films, the framing story, possibly because it's directed by Basil Dearden, uh, pulls everything together uh, very satisfactorily. It's not just a, uh, you want to hear something scary moment, right?
0: Right. And also, unlike almost any anthology film, horror otherwise, it isn't divided into a bad one, an OK one, and a great one. That uh, they're much more uh, even in their uh, quality. Um, well, that brings us to 1945. So next week uh, we're going to uh, jump into the uh, 50s. Uh, we have uh, seen so far a pattern where horror films cluster at the beginning of a decade. Uh, I don't know uh, if there's if that's going to hold up over time. I suspect it isn't. Uh, but uh, next time, I think it's time for some science horror. And uh, some post nuclear dread. So we'll pick that up again uh, a week from now. But however, we're not done this podcast because uh, we have another segment on the other side of this exciting commercial message.
1: Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth
0: now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable
1: hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium from the loathsome servitors of the one percent to the hard scrabble faithful of the rust belt from the abusive warrens of the internet to the lonely chambers of every human heart from the toxic legacy of the cold war to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save american life has entered a labyrinth of twisty turny passages and while there are many ways in There is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out.
0: It's time once more to wend our way up the crickety cobweb stairs, but... Oh, the stairs are kind of swirly this time, and, uh, King Salamander in his portrait, he's there with Hendrix, and, uh... Oh, things are getting a little psychedelic. And, oh, is the consulting occultist wearing a paisley-smoking jacket? Why, yes, because we're here to talk about the occultism of uh, LSD uh, aficionado and advocate uh, Timothy Leary, who was an iconic figure in the late 60s and early 70s. The documentary film by Errol Morris, My Psychedelic Love Story, is now on Showtime, if you get Showtime or something that in another territory licenses stuff from Showtime, check it out. Uh, it is a profile of Joanna Harcourt-Smith, who was Leary's girlfriend, companion uh, during his uh, fugitive era in the uh, late 60s and, uh, and early 70s. And it's a typical great Errol Morris profile film where he just lets his main subject talk and then... Uh, illustrates that as need be with, in this case, suitably trippy graphics. But Harcourt Smith's life is full of amazing strangeness, even without the leery bit. Uh, but one of the things that is briefly mentioned in it is that during his uh, his fugitive years, uh, while he's uh, fled the U.S., he's escaped from prison, he's in Switzerland, and uh, he starts getting obsessed with the tarot. And it turns out he's really into uh, Alistair Crowley and thinks he's somehow... Crowley's reincarnation, which for someone born in 1920, this brings up the whole reincarnation question. Yeah. when you when you qualify to reincarnate with someone who's close to being your contemporary. So I thought, Ken, uh, since Leary's era is uh, the uh, covers the tail end of the fall of Delta Green era that we would look at the general occultism of Timothy Leary because it goes beyond a typical druggy fascination with uh, Alistair Crowley and
1: the Tarot. Yeah, I think that the... Timothy Leary is, as an occultist, he's one of what I believe we have called the boring half of occultism, in that he is a mystic. He comes at occultism via, obviously, his uh, transcendent drug experiences and the notion that psychedelic drugs will take you out of yourself and allow you to perceive the universe without, uh, the tiresome attachments to the physical that we so often have to deal with. And that a psychedelic experience is one of the ways that he, uh, that he tried to do it. He, um, uh, tried all manner of other methodologies to, uh, leave the body and engage in sort of outside thought. He was a uh, devotee of Tibetan Buddhism, as well as other sorts of depersonalizing uh, mystical disciplines. So, he sort of backs into the, the tarot and Crowley and the rest of that, not necessarily because that's what mysticism ineluctably leads to, but it's what Being a somewhat sloppy, contrarian thinker in the 1960s leads you to, because of course, this is when Crowley is having his great revival. You have uh, Jimmy Page briefly experimenting with Crowleyanity and buying Crowley's old house, Bolskin Manor. You have Crowley turning up on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's as one of the people we like. So all Beatles fans immediately, you know, figure out who that guy is and and go into it. And you have the sort of uh hippie culture that is similarly overlapping in a mystical way with alternative modes of thinking uh or alternative modes of avoiding thinking which uh the occult is uh, amply suited to be and so the tarot cards blow up then i think not just for Timothy Leary but you know globally uh you you suddenly start seeing the the Rider-Waite deck showing up and it shows up in a James Bond movie for God's sake it is mainstream uh by the time that Leary is into it and so the uh, uh the notion of Leary, you know, following some sort of path into Crowley or into uh, occultism per se is maybe a little bit overstated because he was always about methodologies by which you you sort of rotate your perception. He, he prefigures in a lot of ways, Robert Anton Wilson. And I feel like Robert Anton Wilson would probably have said, yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of my notions of the playful occult uh, come out of Leary's notion of the arbitrarily selected viewpoint. And uh, he goes back again in, in the early sixties, he's dealing with sort of the tag ends of the Gurdjieff uh, phenomenon. Right. In 63, in
0: he sets up uh, something called the Castalia Foundation, which is his organization to find transcendence without drugs. And that—that that is the Gurdjieff influence comes in there. And then in 66, mm-hmm. he sets up the League for Spiritual Discovery. So just take a moment to acronymize that because it's its very, very clever. And so uh, he's interesting is in this phase where he's sort of a quasi-cult leader because uh, unlike a lot of self-proclaimed uh, masters of the transcendent, he's a little careful about not at least becoming that kind of destructive leader. So, for example, the League for Spiritual Discovery, which uh, seeks transcendence through uh, LSD, there's only 360 people can join. That's it. There's a cutoff. And it's not even like there's 360 elect and the rest of you get to be auxiliary members. His response is, start your own religion. And uh, he, in fact, has a pamphlet from 1967 named Start Your Own Religion. And this little snippet from it, uh, gives you a sense of how he is mixing science technobabble with spiritual technobabble uh, in order to come up with something that is a, a strong strain of the New Age that is going to continue uh, through this day. He's not the only one doing it, but he has a distinctive voice here. A dancing, joyous harmony of energy transactions is rooted in the 12 inches of topsoil, which covers the rock, metal, fire core of this planet. Into this Garden of Eden, each human being is born perfect. We're all born divine mutants, the DNA code's best answer to joyful survival on this planet. An exquisite package for adaptation, based on 2 billion years of consumer research, RNA, and product design, DNA. But each baby, although born perfect, immediately finds himself in an imperfect, artificial, disharmonious social system, which systematically robs him of his divinity. So, in the end... Especially when he's on the run and becomes, and, and then later is in Folsom Prison next door to Charles Manson, uh, his full Gnosticism uh, comes through. He goes through that whole path from from light mysticism to dark mysticism, and winds up declaring that the planet is a prison. Uh, it's not just government. It's not just capitalism. It's not just the man, but in fact, the entire planet is a conspiracy to deprive you of your uh, need to migrate your consciousness outside into some other better solar system.
1: Yeah. Um, over the period of the fall of Delta Green era is also the period in which LSD is becoming illegal. And that's part of the reason that he switches the um, Castelia Foundation, which we should point out does not come. It sounds very chambers but it comes from Herman Hesse, a uh, much more uh, highbrow thing to read. Uh, than our buddy Chambers, and he switches it from the Castelia Foundation or the Castelia Group uh, to the League for Spiritual Discovery in an attempt to get registered as a church, so that he could continue to use LSD as a sacrament. And uh, that worked about as well as you'd expect. So he winds up in the 1960s in his uh, little headquarters, or actually his enormous 65 room headquarters in Millbrook, New York, given to him by Peggy Mellon. That building becomes the target for a lot of FBI raids and. Other raids by other interested parties. So G Gordon Liddy kept uh, breaking into his house all the time in the in the middle 60s uh, to find evidence that would enable them to put him away for drug trafficking. And uh, that's the sort of behavior that leads him to start believing a more paranoid Gnostic uh, view. Also, one suspects heavy drug use has something to do with his uh, paranoid Gnostic view. And he does meet uh, Wilson, but he meets him in the the early 70s. And they figure out the notion that there are eight circuits in the brain and the eighth circuit is left to you by a higher intelligence located in interstellar nuclear gravitational quantum structures and that this circuit is the UFO message and that the UFO message is uh, connected up to your brain architecture. And that this is, again, another direction to, uh, take what he has always intuited mystically and try and give it some sort of structure. Because, uh, obviously, uh, Crowley has, uh, no doubt any number of, of fine, high quality, uh, contributions to the life of a, a hedonist, but it is kind of a rotten, uh, cosmology. And, uh, Leary is not really as you say, in the sort of classic cult guru mode of sleeping around and, and having a bunch of parties, apparently uh when Ken Kesey brought his uh, psychedelic bus to Millbrook, Leary sort of gave him a who are you, go away, you filthy hippie uh, attitude. Uh, so Leary is not doing the sort of uh, sexy guru things that you imagine he might be doing regardless of his proximity intellectually to Crowley and physically to Manson. He is trying at least to keep it on a somewhat higher plane. Pun not intended. Ah, pun totally intended.
0: And of course, by uh, positing and distant interstellar intelligence, he's uh, giving you your, the fall of Delta Green uh, hooks into the mythos that you need so that can be Soth. kind of sounds like uh, it's a drawing in that way. There can be some sort of and gasty effect to LSD in a uh, 60s uh, Delta Green game. You might make some use of uh, one of the alternate religions that came out of the League for Spiritual Discovery, which was the uh, original Kleptonian Neo-American Church, which was a jokey offshoot uh, founded by a guy named Arthur Klepps. Its emblem is a cartoon of of the uh, Colorado River Toad which, of course, is the relatively rare uh, toad that produces a hallucinogen. And they were very much into synchronicity and destroying Saturn. You would think that in the 60s, uh, Saturnalia would be all the rage, but the uh, Kleptonian uh, church wanted to uh, to destroy Saturn. So presumably there's a scenario hook in that as well.
1: And then there is also the period of his repeated arrests for marijuana use, which lead to eventually to his jail time, which leads to his jail break in 1970 in which the weathermen smuggle him out of a low security prison in a pickup truck. And he then goes through a sort of who was who. Uh, The weathermen uh, get him to Algeria to hang out with Eldridge Cleaver, uh, the uh, government in exile of the Black Panthers. And then he escapes from Eldridge Cleaver and uh, a a arms dealer in Switzerland um, takes him in uh, in 1971. He's he's really sort of not helping himself. And indeed, you get the sense that when he's recaptured by the United States, it is a little bit of a relief because the, the time that he spends bopping from weird, violent loner to weird, violent loner cannot have been good for him.
0: Right. And he's he's arrested in Afghanistan. <laughs> and in the uh, Errol Morris film, uh, Jonah Harcourt Smith is like, well, I'm not a conspiracy person, but I suspect that there was a conspiracy involved in it. And it's like, There were totally, you've laid out all the detail of a completely unremarkable American action to get Leary was considered by Nixon as like ideological enemy number one. And he exerted a lot of effort to get him uh, recaptured and uh, put in Folsom. And, you know, obviously prison wardens have a flair for the theatrical and that they put him right next to Manson so they could, they couldn't see each other, but they could have conversations. And of course, Manson said, whole bunch of creepy stuff to leary about like yeah they they had you put away so that i could continue your work man and leary was like it's not my work <laughs> it's not in my. i want to escape the planet
1: <laughs> you you have me confused with someone else's work
0: right uh so to finish the story he winds up turning uh state's evidence because even more than leary the, the fbi want the weathermen uh, so he uh leads them to the the weather underground in a compound it's unclear to what extent that actually help them track down the, uh, the weather underground, but he went into witness protection for a while. Alan Ginsberg wound up disavowing him. And then later they, they reconciled uh, in the late eighties. He's uh, you know, he, he knows his scenes. So he gets into cyberpunk big time and then late eighties. And then in the nineties, he fully comes out and says, yes, of course I've been a neo-pagan all along my friends here at this neo-pagan convention. And uh, so he, Sort of influences and develops and creates the modern uh, new age movement, and then folds himself back into it uh, near the end of his life. And he uh, dies in 1996. Um, So, is there anything that we've uh, left out uh, on left on the table that you would put in your Fall of Delta Green game? You sort of want to extend uh, Fall of Delta Green doesn't go into the early 70s, but the late 60s go into the early 70s, and you might want to. Uh, you know, have, have a coda that, uh, gives you the conclusion of his story up until the, the whole state's evidence thing.
1: I think that the, the sort of the story, depending on how, how mind hunters you want to get with it. I mean, the notion of you're, uh, going into the prison on your real assignment, which is to talk to Manson and you're actually there to talk to Timothy Leary is, is kind of fun. Um, the, the notion that he's got these sort of weird background people that show up the the Swiss arms dealer is, is who immediately screams to me that this has got to be a Delta green suitable situation. And uh, Michelle Oshard does in fact do the worst thing imaginable. He forces Leary to sign over his publishing rights. Uh, so obviously Oshard must be in the pay of the elder ones, because that is not the sort of thing that you do uh, as a gentleman or an arms dealer. Quite frankly, you're even worse. You're a parasite on a writer. Um, and then there is the general sort of notion of the sort of Hollywood connections that he has. He's, he's got a bunch of, of buddies in Hollywood in the, in the seventies or in the late sixties. And so if you're following a Hollywood Babylon weird scenes in the canyon sort of mystical turn up there, possibly again from the Manson connection, Leary again can become a uh, a vital uh, NPC. And of course, the Tibetan connection leads you back to the Migo. So there we are.
0: Right. And your Mindhunters reference now has me thinking of a Timothy Leary series where the reason he's turned States Evidence is that he comes to understand Manson, and then through that uh, develops a psychedelic form of criminal profiling. And the real reason he's in witness protection is they take him from case to case as the eccentric detective. I think that sets off so many psychedelic possibilities that it's time for us to just we just better get out
1: of here, man. We'd better tune out and drop out, as it were, or at least out of this segment. And
0: out of this podcast, but we'll be back next week with more of the same. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pellegrine Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And pro-fantasy
1: software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Tune in, turn on, and support this podcast by chipping in alongside such psychedelic backers as...
1: Neil Dalton. Neil Kaplan. Paul and Cleo Bushland. Liz and
0: Siski. And Adam Grotjan. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Acquire our latest design from... Francis P. Meal Bacon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next
0: time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.